Church, go ahead and have a seat. I, um, you know, those two songs back to back, it's, I really hardly know what to do with because when we lift high the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with our, with our words of praise, um, I, I sometimes feel very exposed because I feel the light of the truth of the gospel shining into my life, revealing to me all that I am not apart from Jesus Christ. And I want you to know this. I have sat with numerous people. Life has taught them the lies and the deceit that the enemy will dangle in front of them, the carrot of deceit and doubt. Life has taught these people in the hands of the great deceiver that God is not good. He can't be good because of what has happened in my life. They've believed the lie for far too long that my life is the bearer of truth in my brokenness. But I want to tell you, brother in Christ, sister in Christ, if you can look back and you can see the disaster of your life and you see the healing power and work of our Savior Jesus Christ coming as he pours his Holy Spirit out on you and he provides you a place in his kingdom, what an amazing, amazing truth that comes straight from the mouth of our God as he brings us into his kingdom, as he deals with our past and says, I don't want you to look at that anymore. I want you to look straight into my face. Straight into the face of Jesus and let him be the one that determines who you are in his kingdom. Man, I'm so thankful for that truth. Well, listen, we have a lot to cover today, and so um, I'm going to ask you to open your words to Genesis chapter 3, and this is where we are. Um, last fall, last fall, we began to answer a question that was weighing heavily on the minds of our elders and staff, and uh, the question was this, how did we get here? And of course, we know how we got here, but we wanted to revisit it. And uh, so we started at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. Last fall, we spent um, from, from September to Christmas letting the Word of God address how we got to where we are. How did we actually get here in the, in the creation account? And Genesis chapter 1-1 declares the, four, the four, first four words of the Bible declare some amazing truth that we must always and constantly hold on to. In the beginning, God... He was there before anything else came into being. Last fall, we started addressing that. In the beginning, God, what did he do? He created the heavens and the earth. And so with that, we don't need to go a whole lot further to, to really wrestle over the truth of how our world came into being because God spoke and it happened. In the beginning, God created. And what did he create? He created the heavens and the earth. And so for a handful of months, we saw God speaking, we see things happening when God speaks, and when things happen as God speaks them, they happen exactly as he intends for them to happen. And when it happens exactly as God intends for it to happen, it is always, always perfect. God spoke, and it was so, and it was good. All words declared multiple times in Genesis chapter 1. When God speaks, it happens just as he intended, and it is good. God spoke. He spoke light into existence. He spoke our atmosphere into, into existence. He spoke of land and plants and animals and everything that mankind would need for five days. And then on the sixth day, in order to complete it, God sees that things are not totally complete, and he decides it's time to make something or someone in the image of himself, and he decides to make mankind. So he makes mankind. He gives us two commands. He says, listen, I want you to be fruitful, and I want you to multiply, and I want you to fill the earth, and I want you to subdue it and rule over it. And then he gives us another. He said, Adam, this is what I want you to do. You have access to everything in this garden. Everything that provides food for you is yours to eat, except for one thing. And that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For that one you cannot have. In the day that you take of that, you will surely die. 
Six days to complete, and at the end of six days, the last verse in chapter 1, this is what God says. He saw that everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And God, in his great foreknowledge, at the end of the creation account, at the end of six days, knowing that mankind was going to need to be told to rest, he provides us an example of what it means to rest. He spent six days creating everything that we see around us. Six days creating that, and then on the seventh day, he sits back, he looks over his creation, and he rests, providing us with an example of how we're supposed to live our lives. And we all know this, rest is hard to come by, but we can for sure find rest in our Savior Jesus Christ. He is our Sabbath. He is the one that provides us with rest. God provides us with that example at the beginning as he is created and then rested. So our sermon series, how did we get here? We got here by God's spoken word. The garden, Adam, Eve. Now, from now on until Easter, and I love the timing of this, we're going to answer the question, how did we get here? With this mess that we find ourselves in, with sickness, with pain, with death, with loss. The world as you know it today, how did we get to this place? And I love the timing of this. We're going to spend January, February, March, we're going to come right up to Easter, and Easter's going to answer the question for how do we deal, how did God deal with this mess that mankind has created, has caused to come into existence in his world? How did we end up in this mess we're in? Well, I trust that over the next couple of months, you're going to receive the truth of God's word and let it sink deep into your hearts and let it be a strong encouragement to you, brother and sister in Christ. And so as we get into the word today, let's look to God in prayer, okay? Father in heaven, I come before you right now. Um, Understanding completely, Lord, that it is your spirit that must do the work and trusting to you your word. Lord, I pray that your truth today would speak loud and clear to those that are listening. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me. I pray, Lord, that you would um, wrestle with the hearts that are involved with this service today. I pray, Lord, that you would break the hard heart, soften it. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage the heart that is hurting. I pray that you would bring healing to the heart that is hurting. We look to you, Lord, now to pour your spirit out on this church and that you would do a magnificent and mighty work. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Here's what we see. Here's what we're about to see. We see this serpent, a beast of the field that was created by God, approaching Eve And as the serpent approaches Eve, he begins by casting doubt in her mind by saying, did God actually say? Challenging the character of God. Then following that, we see Eve deciding it's okay for her to engage the serpent in a discussion. And so she tries to answer the doubt that Satan, that the serpent is bringing to her. And as she answers it, the enemy comes back and as doubt has been cast, the serpent lets Eve speak. Eve speaks, and then the serpent comes back with a straight-out lie and a deceit that will challenge her and her understanding of what it means to live a life of satisfaction. And she deceives him. She deceives... (laughs) Let me say that again. He deceives her. So that's what we're going to see right now. So let's walk through this passage together. together. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said... You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, 
and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. All right, kids, I'm about to talk to your parents about this passage, but here's what I want you to do. You have your bulletin in front of you. I want you to draw a picture of what it looked like for God to create the serpent, okay? And I believe there's space provided for you in your bulletin to to do that. What did it look like for God to create the serpent, all right? And then, God is more powerful, kids, than the serpent. And I want you to answer this question. How can you know that from Genesis chapter 3, verse 1? How can you know that God is more powerful than the serpent? I'll be talking to you in just a little bit, but right now that's what I would like you to do, okay? When I read this passage, I, there are a lot of questions that come to mind, and there, is, there has not been a time where I sit down with someone and talk about Genesis chapter 3 and the first five verses where tons of questions don't come rolling out. So I'm just going to give you the first four that have come to mind, and there are so many others. But when you read these verses, you, I, I can't help but say, why, God? Why did you permit this to happen? You have your perfect, perfect creation. The garden is perfect. Man is without sin. He is in right relationship with you. Why did you let this happen? That's my first question. Here's the second one. Who, God, who is this serpent after all? I see him being declared as a created being, and you're letting him come and, and position himself before Eve in order to cause doubt and bring her to a place of deception. Who is this serpent? And why? Why did you permit the serpent to actually and even approach Eve? How, God? How was Eve even deceived? She is created perfectly. She has everything she needs in the garden and above all in relationship with you. How is it that in her perfection... As your created being, was she able to be deceived and even given to doubt? And then I ask the question, evil. How is evil even present in your perfect creation, the garden? How did that happen? And, and here's, here's what I know. As I present those questions to you that I'm wrestling over, I believe there are ones that as you read through this, there are questions popping into your mind that you're finding a hard time answering. Well, some of these we can answer and some we cannot. And so here's the caution for us. When we read a passage like this, our temptation is to fill in blanks that we really cannot fill in. And so we must be careful to not fill in blanks that we cannot fill. It's okay for us to be in a position of not knowing. And you know, I think about this, parents. One of your kids' favorite question is why? This happened. Well, you have to do this. Well, why? Our kids want to know why we ask them to do the things they do. And here's what I would say to you. You need to present them from time to time with things that they must do without providing the answer why. And here's why. Because as we look at Scripture, God is going to give us instructions and, com- and commands over and over, and oftentimes He's not going to provide the answer for why. And so our kids need to learn, hey, listen, I'm not always going to have the answer for why. God's going to say He's going to speak a truth to me, and because He says I have to do it, I must do it. Maybe one day he'll open our eyes and bring us to a place of understanding as to why he said what he said, why he asked us to do what we're supposed to do. But right now, when we're in a place where there are things we don't understand and we can't find the answer why, we have to trust in God's goodness that he has provided us with everything we need for life and godliness. Every direction and directive we need for life and godliness is presented in his word. Everything. And so if we can't answer a question we have regarding something that God said, we need to sit back and trust that God in his goodness has chosen not to provide us with the answer. And so we must simply to act, must simply act with obedience and in obedience. And here's another one as it relates to filling in those blanks. Keep this in mind. When we try and fill in blanks that we cannot fill in, we run the temptation or we run the risk 
of using, misusing God's word and adding to it when we're told not to. We cannot build a solid foundation. We cannot build a solid biblical foundation with unanswered or unanswerable questions. We must build with what? This foundation, we must build with what we can clearly answer. And so when we look at this passage, here's what we know for sure. The serpent was crafty. He was a created being that was created by God. He spoke to, he spoke to Eve and he said, the serpent said, did God actually say? And we see the woman responding to the serpent with her answer. And then God's, and then she says that God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And we see the serpent once again responding, saying to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will know, you will be like God knowing good and evil. Questions? Let's go with what we know and let's build a solid foundation with what we know. The great deception... That's what we're trying to answer today. What was the great deception? How do we go from life to death? How do we go from life in the garden to separation from God? How do we get to where we are today? Let's walk through this verse by verse. Here's the first one. Verse 1 says this, that the serpent... His entire intention was to cast out. The serpent cast out. Now the serpent, more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had created. Who was the serpent? Here's what we can answer. He was a crafty beast that God created. Now crafty here simply means that he was cunning, that he was clever. And now this doesn't, when this word is used crafty, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a negative thing or a positive thing, it just means that this is who he was that could have been used for both positive and negative. But what we know is he had the intent to cause doubt in the mind of Eve. He was a created being. He was crafty. Here's how I kind of see him. Now, I'm not against vacuum cleaner salesmen. Not at all. I know we need vacuums, and I know they have a job to do, but I'm thinking about one in particular like 10 years ago This is how crafty he was. He showed up at quarter after four, and I was still at work. And at quarter after four, he shows up to the door, and he goes after the one that is the the one with the nesting instinct, my wife. And so he walks in, and for 45 minutes, he's declaring to her how dirty our carpet is and how necessary it is for us to have a brand new $1,500 vacuum cleaner with another $1,000 worth of attachment to make sure your house is as clean as it needs to be. Well, here's what I know. We lived in that house for at least eight years, and we're all fine. I'm thinking, I'm thinking $2,500 for a vacuum cleaner. I'm willing to go back to dirt floors before I would pay for a $2,500 vacuum cleaner. That to me is crafty and cunning. He had a plan. He was going to the one with the nesting instinct. He was going to try and convince her with the hope that she would turn and then convince me to spend this much money on this vacuum cleaner for him to make a sale. It didn't work. And then it was fun to watch him walk out the door. That's, that's what I believe crafty, cunning looks like. And we see the serpent being used in order to deceive. Adam knew the serpent, chapter 2, verse 19. You look at Eve, her response to him, there was no fear there. But Adam, in verse, in verse 19, chapter 2, so if you just roll back a few verses, we see that God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and he brought them before the man. He brought them before Adam to see what he would call them. And to whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And so we know that Adam even named the serpent the serpent. Eve wasn't afraid of him. There was nothing that put her off. Why? How did it, how did it speak? I don't have an answer for that. But here's what I know. The serpent was crafty, and he was a beast that God created, which means 
He is not nearly as powerful as the Lord God because the Lord God is the one that created him. Eve was not afraid. Eve, actually, fear never even shows up until after the fall, and we'll see in a few weeks, chapter 3, verse 9, after the fall, Adam says when he hears the sound of God walking in the, in the garden, he said, I hid from you because I was afraid. There was no fear in the garden before them. We see Eve standing with confidence before the serpent, ready to engage in discussion with him. What was the serpent like? Who was the serpent? I, I, here's what I know. He was a crafty beast that God created. And I personally believe that it wasn't actually Satan in the flesh, let's say. But here's what I know. The serpent and Satan were so intermingled that the serpent was being used by Satan to declare a message that Satan, that the devil intended for the serpent to use as he stood before, as he stood before Eve. That's my personal perspective on it. But hear me say this again. They were so intermingled, both the serpent and the enemy, capital E, that there was really very little recognition between, like a separation of the two. They were one. So we see this serpent coming before Eve, and he throws this in front of her. Did God actually say? Did God actually say? The serpent introduced the shameful act of questioning God. And I think that was the beginning of the end for Eve as she is about to enter into discussion with him. The serpent introduced the shameful act of questioning God. The enemy was creating doubt, an attack on the character of God. I do not understand how that could have happened, but we know that it happened. Doubt is created by the serpent. And then in verses two and three, we see Eve engaging the serpent. And the woman said, she said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. It's interesting that the woman says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees that is in the midst of the garden. So it's almost as though she's claiming to be one that is a declarer of truth. Because then she says, but God said, it's like woman spoke, Eve spoke, and she said this, and then in verse 3 we see her saying, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Eve's accounting of what God said was not exactly what God said. And I think a lesson we can learn from Eve right now is we must be so very careful with how we use the Word of God. It is so easy, and I go back to the filling in of the blanks, it's so easy for us to see the Word of God and use it for our own benefit and fill in blanks as we try and explain. We have to be very careful with how we use the Word of God. What did God actually say? What did God actually say? Chapter 2, verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man. And he says this, You may may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That's what he said. God said it all. This is exactly what I am providing for you. In this one little piece, I am saying you may not have. You see that that Eve actually added a little bit there when she said, you shall not eat of the fruit. She said that God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And then she adds, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Here's my admonition. What God says, that's what we share. What God says, that's what we share. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's what God said. And I stand there, and I read this. I stand here, and I read this, and I continue every time I look at it. Eve, don't do it. Don't, don't do this. Don't engage the enemy in a discussion. Don't engage the enemy in a debate because you are sure to lose. He is crafty. He is clever. We should never engage the enemy. I even look at Jesus and I consider Jesus in the garden, or excuse me, I look at Jesus as he had been after fasting for 40 days. This enemy approaches him and he says, he, he, he tempts Jesus three times. And he uses scripture to try and combat the things that Jesus was saying. He is so clever. Our posture should be never engaging the enemy, but standing behind Jesus and letting him be the one to engage the battle that the enemy wants to bring to us, standing behind Jesus. But we see Eve engaging. Doubt has been cast. Eve tries to answer, and then verses 4 and 5, this is what we see happen. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. A straight lie. We know this today because we can see it after the fall. After Eve and Adam gave in to the deception and they took of the forbidden fruit and they ate it. We know after the fact that they died. Not just a physical death, but more importantly, a spiritual death. They had everything they needed. She had everything she needed in the garden and in relationship with God. And when she was separated from a relationship with God, she experienced a spiritual death. So not only did they die physically, not only did she die physically, but she also died spiritually as she was removed from right relationship with God. Hey, kids, what does it feel like to be lied to? What does it feel like when you realize, I've just been lied to? I was just fooled. Now answer this question, why is it so bad to lie? Answer that one in your bulletin, okay? And that's, that's for us to wrestle with too, adults. What does it feel like to know that we have been deceived. The serpent said straight to the woman, you will not surely die. The deception begins with a straight out lie. And then verse five, he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is the great deception? The great deception is this. There is way more for you than what God is telling you. You are not satisfied because you don't know what else there is for you. You're not going to die. You're actually going to experience life more fully than you know. That is the great deception. There is more. What you have, Eve, is not enough. Eve had it all. Everything she needed in the garden, in abundance. And above all, she had right relationship with her creator. And the enemy slinks up to her and says, there's more. And you are not satisfied until you have more. The great deception. I think about David on the rooftop. Deception. Looking and seeing Bathsheba. Did God actually say that if I commit adultery, that I'm sinning? I see David wandering around the rooftop, looking and considering, rolling it through his mind. I know God said, I know God said, but did he really say? And you see the enemy dangling that temptation in front of him, and what does he do? He goes after the very thing that God said, don't do it. Did God actually say that I should not commit adultery? 
The answer is yes. God actually said that. Did God actually say, I should not commit murder? The answer is yes. You should not commit murder. Did God actually say that if I think a lustful thought about another woman, that I've committed adultery in my heart? Yes, God actually said that. Did God actually say that if I hate my brother, if I have hate in my heart toward him, that I've already committed murder in my heart? The answer is yes. Every time I lose my temper, am I expressing something that God says don't express? And the answer is yes. Did God actually say that if I don't forgive my brother, if I withhold forgiveness from him, did he actually say that he won't forgive me? The answer is yes. The enemy's desire is to deceive us and water down the truth of God and make a way for his words of deception to sink into our hearts and make us live in in disobedience to God's command. Did God actually say, I cannot have. I can't have this thing even though it feels like I should have it. And the answer is yes. I see Eve standing before the enemy, walking around the tree, considering the, tr- considering the words that the enemy said. Did God actually say, I shouldn't have this? The enemy attacked the character of God, and right now Eve is permitting herself to be tempted by that very doubt. And as she walks around the tree, she continues to look at the beauty of it. And and then she thinks through, this serpent told me that there's more for me. I think I want more for me. But God said I shouldn't have that. And she continues to entertain and entertain and entertain. Doubt versus truth. Did God actually say, yes, he actually said, you may not have that. How often do we do that? We see this piece of fruit hanging in front of us, and our heart and everything in our being says, if I have that very thing, it's going to satisfy me. And we do the same thing. We walk around it, and we walk around it, and we walk around it, and we let that doubt that piece of temptation dangle right in front of us and we keep looking at it and we pray about it. Lord, if this isn't what you have for me, please remove these feelings from me. And we continue to walk around it. Lord, take this from me. If I can't have that, don't let me have the desire. And over time, it could be a week, a month, 10 years. You will convince yourself, well, God has not taken this feeling from me for that thing, so he must mean for me to have it. When God says, you may not have this. Did God actually say? Yes, God actually says. And you know what, we can, we can do our best to place ourselves in Eve's shoes in the moment as she's walking around that. And we can, man, we can point a finger of judgment and say, Eve, you had everything. You didn't need to do that. You had everything. You had right relationship with God. You were fulfilled completely. But look, we can't. We can't do that. We can't put ourselves in her shoes. We're looking back. We have the fullness of Scripture before us. Yeah, I know. And, and she had the fullness of relationship with God in front of her, and yet she did it. Yet here we stand today in our flesh and in our sin, making the same decisions that Eve made, and we're doing it over and over and over again. So here's a question for us. How do I not be where Eve was? How do we not be where she was? How do, we, how do we avoid from going from life to death, from innocence to guilty, let's say? How do we go from life to death? 
Here's the first one. By entertaining attack on the character of God. We should know and recognize our enemy. We can spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out what the serpent looked like and who he was. Here's what we know. The serpent was taken over by evil and was used by the enemy as the enemy to cause doubt in the, in the mind and the heart of mankind, in the mind and heart of Eve, in order to finally trick her and deceive her and cause her to enter into sin. We need to spend more time considering what the deceiver looks like today than being concerned with what he looked like back then. What does the deceiver look like to you? Put flesh on it. Put flesh on him. Put a voice to it. What does the deceiver look like to you? What does he sound like to you? What impressions does he hang in front of you that cause you to want to go after them? What does he look like today? Listen, he, he is a... He is a poser and a proclaimer. He poses as a proclaimer of the truth. That's what he looks like. But in the end, he is a liar. He is a liar that oftentimes speaks in half-truths, trying to deceive you. He's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking for those he would devour. That's what he looks like today. But put flesh on it. What does he sound like? You know what's scary for me? Here I am, a spirit-filled believer. And I look at the life of Peter as he walked with Jesus for three years. I look at the life of Peter. And there was a moment where Jesus was laying out, this is what has to happen in order for me to make right the wrongs that mankind has done. I'm going to have to be, I'm going to have to be taken to a cross, put to death. And I'm going to have to rise again. And Peter says, far be it from you, Jesus. You're not going to do that. And what does Jesus say to Peter? who is in relationship with Jesus. He says to him, get behind me, Satan, for you are after your plans, not my plans. And I I stand here as a spirit-filled believer, lamenting over the times I know as a follower of Jesus Christ, where I stand in the same shoes as Peter, being used by the enemy to deceive others, to speak non-truths, What are the events in your life? What are the things in your life? What are the ways in your life where you are responding to doubt and deceit? And ultimately, in those moments, you're being used to profane the name of the Lord in the sin that you choose to engage in. When we entertain an attack on the character of God, When we enter an attack on the character of God, in those moments, we express death, not life. Let's look at this next one, number two. How do we go from life to death? By debating the enemy. Church, listen, we should never do that. We should never debate the enemy. Really, we are simple, naive, created beings. We are a child of Adam and Eve, We are too easily fooled. He, keep this in mind, the enemy is more crafty than we are. We should never engage him in a battle. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Our position should be standing behind Jesus, letting him fight our battles for us. He's the one that can answer the enemy and we can look over his shoulder and know that he's taking care of us. Oh yeah, but what about, what about the full armor of God that I'm told to put on? Yeah, that's an entirely defensive set of armor that you're being told to put on. Yeah, but what about the sword of the spirit? That's an offensive weapon. You know what? It can be used as an offensive weapon. But here's what I would suggest to you. Use it as a defensive weapon. Don't go on the attack. Use it as a protection for yourself. Train yourself in the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit, so that you will know deceit when you hear it. So you will know when the enemy causes doubt in your mind and in your heart. Don't debate the enemy. And here's the third one. 
How do we go from life to death? By listening to lies instead of truth. Listen, church, never, ever, ever doubt the truth. When God says it, he means it. He always means what he says. I go back to the beginning of this sermon and I think about, I think about the goodness of God as we sang about it. I think about the goodness of God and how we are tempted to look over the course of our lives into our past and oftentimes we can see areas of our lives where we caused massive disasters, where we wrecked our lives in those moments and it causes us to, us to question and question God's goodness. Never doubt his truth. When he says it, he means it. When we let life be what determines for us what is truth, we're going to miss it every time. I sat with an individual, and for an hour and a half, this individual declared to me the course of over two decades of his life. This was wrong, this was wrong, this was wrong, this was wrong, this was wrong. For an hour and a half, he had nothing good to say about what God did for his life. Nothing. And what that person had done was he had let life be his source of truth. Because this is what happened to me, this must be what's true. If this is what happened to me, then God must not be good. If God is not good, we come to a place where we have been deceived, we have given into doubt, and we are believing the lie. God's truth is always right. God's truth is always good. God is always, always good. So I want to close with this. For those of us who are in relationship with Christ today, we must simply do this. Resist the enemy and he will flee from you. You stand in resistance to the enemy, hiding behind the person of Jesus Christ, letting him fight your battles. You listen to his truth. When God says it, believe it. Wrap yourself in the goodness of God. And if there is a temptation you are experiencing right now to believe a lie of the enemy, tell someone. That's why we are in fellowship together. Tell someone. Now listen, for you, if you are here today, if you are listening in online, for the unbeliever, this is what I say to you. This enemy... He has a veil hanging over your eyes right now that you cannot see through, and you were ultimately deceived. Jesus, just before he died, he prayed this most magnificent prayer. And in that prayer, he says this to God the Father, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That is a prayer that he prayed over every child of God. And so if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, you do not have the protection, the very protection from God the Father that Jesus Christ prayed over those that are his. You are not protected. You will continue being deceived. And it's time right now to accept the truth that apart from Christ, you are a mess. Apart from Christ, you are deceived. Let him come into your life. Bow your knee in submission to him. Make this prayer count for you as you come into relationship with him and receive the protection that God the Father provides for his children from the deceiver. Protection begins when you come to the protector. Your simple prayers right now are insufficient if you are unsaved, if you haven't come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and receive the protection that he provides from the enemy. Let him open your eyes and remove the veil of deceit and let him show you what his truth really is. I pray, as we continue on through this, that you would continue to come back to this. Doubt is everywhere. Deceit is everywhere. 
And Jesus is the only one that provides an answer for those two things. Next week, we're going to see the result of what happens when we give in to doubt and deceit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I'm thankful that when you speak, it is true. Nothing can change it. I'm thankful, Lord Jesus, that you have made a way for us to be in relationship with you. Lord, just as each one of us are dead apart from you, I am so thankful that you provide a way for us to be in relationship with you and have life. Lord, I pray for each one now that this truth would come to bear in their hearts, that you would meet each one where he or she is, and that you would do a mighty work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for that, Todd. Let's stand up together. When I was in high school, it's the time where I believe I was saved, where I responded to a a gospel call at the end of a service. I'd been in church for a while, and I thought I was already, I always loved God. Even when I grew up in the Methodist church and didn't even know what the gospel was, I still had just a heart for God. I mean, I I wanted to know him. I didn't really know much about him. And And I remember God making that opportunity come where I could respond to him in in prayer and faith. But here's the grace of God. I had no idea. I didn't really understand him. Because if I really put myself back in the shoes of that high schooler, I really thought that being saved and following Jesus was basically just going to kind of release the potential in me to be everything I was meant to be. And I didn't, wasn't taught, I didn't really understand the condition of my heart. I didn't understand why I needed to be saved. I just thought, oh, this is just that little tool that's going to help me to be even awesome. And God's going to be so happy with me. And praise God, he met me at the level I was at. Praise God, I was saved. Praise God, I slowly began to learn over time. But the culture we live in has a really, really hard time with looking at hard things. We're used to just needing people to say, hey, you are enough. You're amazing. You're so great. Don't believe anything that makes you think otherwise. But we know there's an accuser. And so we know that we can look at these words. We can see ourselves in these stories and say, yeah, I would have done the same thing Eve did. I'm no different than she is. I would easily have been deceived and and, and forgotten about the goodness of God. I would have easily put two and two together and say, hey, if I just do this, it's going to be better. But the reality is God allows us to see ourselves in this narrative, not that we would be full of shame, because we know the enemy is the accuser of the brethren who comes and tries to say, you're not, you're awful, you're horrible, you can't do anything right. God uses the reality of this mirror of God's word to cause us to do one thing, to cling to him and to long for him and to need him. And I'm going to read you a prayer. And some of you will be like, seriously, 17th, 18th century prayer. Really, Corey, you got nothing a little more modern for us. But these Puritans, they, they had something. They understood the goodness of God. And they understood the trappings of the human flesh and how we so many times miss the goodness of God. And so th- I found this prayer this week. And I believe this prayer should be the prayer of our hearts today. And it's called this, I have need of Jesus. So if you see yourself like Eve as, as, the, as being deceived or being tempted to question the goodness of God or being tempted to be disobedient, just call it good, then, then watch the words of this prayer as I pray them over you. We've simplified the language a little bit to make it easier to understand, but I believe the heart of this is so true. And then it's going to lead us into a place and into just a few minutes that we're going to take of opening our hearts to the Lord and and really, truly crying out, Jesus, I need you. So this is how this prayer is written. Lord Jesus, I am blind. Be my light. I'm ignorant. Be my wisdom. I am self-willed. Be my mind. Open my ear to grasp quickly your spirit's voice and delightfully run after his beckoning hand. Melt my conscience that no hardness would remain. Make it alive to evil's slightest touch. And when Satan approaches, may I flee to your wounds and there cease to tremble at all alarms. Be my good shepherd lead me into the green pastures of your word and cause me to lie down beside the rivers of its comforts. Fill me with peace that no disquieting worldly gales may ruffle the calm surface of my soul. 
Your cross was upraised to be my refuge. Your blood streamed forth to wash me clean. Your death occurred to give me a surety. Your name is my property to save me. And by you, all heaven is poured into my heart. But it's too narrow to comprehend your love. I was a stranger, an outcast, a slave, a rebel. But your cross has brought me near. It's softened my heart. It's made me your father's child. It's admitted me into your family. It's made me a joint heir with yourself. And oh, that I may love you as you love me, that I may walk worthy of you, my Lord, that I may reflect the image of heaven's firstborn. May I always see your beauty with the clear eye of faith and feel the power of your spirit in my heart. For unless your spirit move mightily in me, no inward fire will be kindled. And so we're going to sing these simple words. Here's my heart, Lord. I don't, let's just not sing a song together. Let's sing a prayer together. So maybe it means shutting your eyes. Maybe it means kneeling. Maybe it means coming forward and praying. Maybe it means taking a moment to sit down and contemplate where you're at with the Lord. If you don't know him, ask him. Say, here's my heart, God. Take all the garbage. Take everything. Take the trophies. Take the mistakes. And save me. And give me an an understanding of how good you are and how greatly you are to be praised. So we're going to sing these words, the song. It might be new to you. I know you'll, you'll figure it out very quickly. But don't miss this opportunity to do what the song is singing about, okay? Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. Sing that again. Here's my heart. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true Cause I am found I am yours I am loved I've made pure I have life I can breathe I am healed I am free Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart.